welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Focus and Mastery. Success isn't chance. Success is focus. And then ultimately, success is simply a byproduct of mastery. So if we want to become successful at anything in life, an understanding of what it takes to master that thing is going to be critical. But first, you've got to pay attention. In many cases, pay close attention to what the heck is going on around you and inside of you. You have to ask yourself some questions, sometimes some hard questions, to get to the bottom of what you want and what you will have to do to get it. You've got to open your eyes and truly see what's in front of you, what barriers exist, what part of your history challenges your perspective, what goals you are comfortable setting, and what refinements are you willing to make to adjust those goals so they become smart goals and not just pipe dreams. I've found through this crazy, detailed, intense, and amazing set of circumstances and life events of my own, that you have to have distinctly clear vision and a penetrating, piercing, black hole focus on the task or goal at hand to truly make it happen, especially when it's an original or powerful or difficult or once-in-a-lifetime pursuit. You've got to be all the way about it. And it begins with your crystal clear vision and powerful focus. Honestly, though, if you cannot put this kind of process in place, make this kind of commitment, do this kind of thing, then homeostasis will kick in and you will return to your overwhelmingly familiar regular self and your standard circumstances and then wait it out. And honestly, in many cases, that's cool. Because in the end, you need to be you, and you need to be comfortable with you. And in the end, simply do you, like nobody else. Not a facsimile, not a substitute, not an imposter, not like someone trying to front. 
Not to impress anyone, not to take a temporary position of perspective or commitment to make a point, but to honest to God, tell the truth and just do your own thing the way you want to do it. And in the end, find happiness in that. With an exclamation point at the end, find happiness in that. But and however, if you want more, and you want to climb that crazy proverbial mountain, and you want to reach heights in the process and have actually visualized powering through to a revised, enhanced, and upgraded you, then stick with me here and let's learn some lessons and understand the drills to get started and stay on path, that elusive yet special path to mastery. Let's go and let's keep going till we get there in our pursuit of mastery through focus. As an example, you resolve to make a change for the better in your life. It could be any significant change, but let's say it involves getting on the path of mastery, developing a regular practice. You tell your friends about it. You put your resolution in writing. You actually make the change. It works. It feels good. You're happy about it. Your friends are happy about it. Your life is better than you backslide. Why? Are you some kind of slob who has no willpower? Not necessarily. Backsliding is a universal experience. Every one of us resists significant change, no matter whether it's for the worse or for the better. Our body, brain, and behavior have a built-in tendency to stay the same within rather narrow limits and to snap back when changed. And it's a very good thing they do. Just think about it. If your body temperature moved up or down by 10%, you'd be in big trouble. The same thing applies to your blood sugar level and to any number of other functions of your body. This condition of equilibrium, this resistance to change, is called homeostasis. It characterizes all self-regulating systems, from a bacterium to a frog a human individual, to a family, to an organization, to an entire culture. And it applies to psychological states and behavior as well as the physical functioning. The simplest example of homeostasis can be found in your home heating system. The thermostat on the wall senses the room temperature when the temperature on the winter's day drops below the level you've set. The thermostat sends an electrical signal that turns the heater on. The heater completes the loop by sending heat to the room in which the thermostat is located. When the room temperature reaches the level you've set, the thermostat sends an electrical signal back to the heater, turning it off, thus maintaining homeostasis. Keeping a room at the right temperature takes only one feedback loop. Keeping even the simplest single-celled organism alive and well takes thousands. And maintaining a human being in a state of homeostasis takes billions of interweaving electrochemical signals pulsating in the brain, rushing along nerve fibers, coursing through the bloodstream. One example, each of us has about 150,000 
tiny thermostats in the form of nerve endings close to the surface of our skin that are sensitive to the loss of heat from our bodies, and another 16,000 or so a little deeper in the skin that alert us to the entry of heat from without. An even more sensitive thermostat resides in the hypothalamus at the base of the brain, close to the branches of the main artery that brings blood from the heart to the head. This thermostat can pick up even the tiniest change of temperature in the blood. When you start getting cold, these thermostats and signal the sweat glands, pores, and small blood vessels near the surface of the body to close down. Glandular activity and muscle tension cause you to shiver in order to produce more heat, and your senses send a very clear message to your brain, leading you to keep moving, to put on more clothes, to cuddle closer to someone, to seek shelter, or to build a fire. Homeostasis in social groups bring a, brings additional feedback loops into play. Families stay stable by means of instruction, exhortation, punishment, privileges, gifts, favors, signs of approval and affection, and even by means of extremely subtle body language and facial expressions. Social groups larger than the family add various types of feedback systems. A national culture, for example, is held together by the legislative process, law enforcement, education, the popular arts, sports and games, economic rewards that favor certain types of activity, and by a complex web of mores, prestige markers, celebrity role modeling, and style that relies largely on the media as a national nervous system. Although we might think that our culture is made for the new and predominant function of all this, as with the feedback loops in your body, is the survival of things as they are. The problem is, homeostasis works to keep things as they are even if they aren't very good. Let's say, for instance, that for the last 20 years, ever since high school, in fact, you've been almost entirely sedentary. Now, most of your friends are working out, and you figure that if you can't beat the fitness revolution, you'll join in. Buying the tights and running shoes is fun, and so are the first few steps as you start jogging on the high school track near your house. Then, about a third of the way around the first lap, something terrible happens. Maybe you're suddenly sick to your stomach. Maybe you're dizzy. Maybe there's a strange, panicky feeling in your chest. Maybe you're going to die. No, you're going to die. What's more, the particular sensations you're feeling probably aren't significant in themselves. What you're really getting is a homeostatic alarm signal. Bells clanging, lights flashing, warning, warning. Significant changes in respiration, heart rate, metabolism, whatever you're doing, stop doing it immediately. While this is all very dramatic and overwhelming to think about, remember that homeostasis doesn't distinguish between what you would call change for the better and change for the worse. It resists all change. After 20 years without exercise, your body regards a sedentary style of life as normal 
the beginning of a change for the better is interpreted as a threat. So you walk slowly back to your car, figuring you'll look around for some other revolution to join. Take another case involving a family of five. Unfortunately, the father happens to be an alcoholic who goes on a binge every six to eight weeks. During the time he's drinking and for several days afterward, the family is in an uproar. It's nothing new. This kind of thing has happened for years and years and years. And sometimes it's not the father, it's the mother or sometime other, some other family member. Still, these periodic up uproars have become, in fact, the normal state of things for this family. Then, for one reason or the other, the father stops drinking. You'd think that everyone in the family would be happy, and they are, for a while. But homeostasis has a strange and sneaky way of striking back. There's a pretty good chance that within a very few months, some other family member, say a teenage son, will do something, say, get caught dealing drugs, as an example, to create just the type of uproar the father's binges previously triggered. Without wise professional counsel, the members of this family won't realize that the son, unknowingly, has simply taken the father's place to keep the family system in the condition that has become stable and normal. No need here to count the ways that organizations and cultures resist change and backslide when change does occur. Just let it be said that the resistance here, as in other cases, is proportionate to the size and speed of the change, not to whether the change is favorable or unfavorable. If an organizational or cultural reform meets tremendous resistance, it is because it's either a tremendously bad idea or a tremendously good idea. Trivial change, bureaucratic meddling, is much easier to accept. And that's one reason why you see so much of it. In the same way, the talkier forms of psychotherapy are acceptable, at least to some degree, because perhaps they sometimes change nothing very much except the patient's ability to talk about his or her problems. But none of this is meant to condemn homeostasis. We want our mind and bodies and organizations to hold together. We want that paycheck to arrive on schedule. In order to survive, we need stability. Still, change does occur. Individuals change. Families change. Organizations and entire cultures change. Homeostats are reset, even though the process might cause a certain amount of anxiety, pain, and upset. The questions are, how do you deal with homeostasis? How do you make change for the better easier? How do you make it last? These questions rise to great importance when you embark on the path of mastery. Say that after years of hacking around in your career, you decide to approach it in terms of the principles of mastery. Your whole life obviously will change, and thus you'll have to deal with homeostasis. But even if you should begin applying mastery to pursuits such as gardening or tennis, which might seem less than central to your existence, the effects of the change might ripple out to touch almost everything you do.
Realizing significantly more of your potential in almost anything can change you in many ways. And however, and however much you enjoy and profit from the change, you'll probably meet with homeostasis sooner or later. You might experience homeostatic alarm signals in the form of physical or, or psychological symptoms. You might unknowingly sabotage your own best efforts. You might get resistance from family, friends, and coworkers. And you can consider yourself fortunate indeed if you don't find yourself on that old familiar slide back to the ways of the dabbler or the obsessive or the hacker. Ultimately, you'll have to decide if you really do want to spend the time and effort that it really takes to get on and stay on the path. If you do, here are five guidelines that might help. While these guidelines are focused on mastery, mastery, they could also be applied to any change in your life. Number one, be aware of the way homeostasis works. This might be the most important guideline of all. Expect resistance and backlash. Realize that when the alarm bells start ringing, it doesn't necessarily mean you're sick or crazy or lazy or that you've made a bad decision in embarking on the journey of mastery. In fact, you might take these signals as an indication that your life is definitely changing, just what you've wanted. Of course, it might be that you have started something that's not right for you. Only you can decide. But in any case, don't panic and give up at the first sign of trouble. You might also expect resistance from friends and family and coworkers. Homeostasis, as we've seen, applies to social systems as well as individuals. Say you used to struggle out of bed at 7.30 and barely drag yourself to work at nine. Now that you're on a path to mastery, you're up at six for a three mile run and in the office charged with energy at 8.30. You might figure that your coworkers would be overjoyed, but don't be too sure. And when you get home, still raring to go, do you think that your family will welcome the change? Maybe. Bear in mind that an entire system has to change when any part of it changes. So don't be surprised if some of the people you love start covertly or overtly undermining your self-improvement. It's not that they wish you harm. It's just homeostasis at work. Number two, be willing to negotiate with your resistance to change. So what should you do when you run into resistance, when the red lights flash and the alarm bells ring? Well, you don't back off and you don't bull your way through. Negotiation is the ticket to successful long-term change in everything from increasing your running speed to transforming your organization. The long distance runner working for a faster time on a measured course negotiates with homeostasis by using pain, not as an adversary, but as the best possible guide to performance. The change-oriented manager keeps his or her eyes and ears open for signs of dissatisfaction or dislocation, then plays the edge of discontent, the inevitable escort of transformation. The fine art of playing the edge in this case involves a willingness to take one step back for every two forward, sometimes vice versa. 
It also demands a determination to keep pushing, but not without awareness. Simply turning off your awareness to the warning deprives you of guidance and risks severely damaging the system. Simply pushing your way through despite the warning signals increases the possibility of backsliding. You can never be sure exactly what the resistance will, is that will pop up. A feeling of anxiety, psychosomatic complaints, a tendency towards self-sabotage, squabbles with family, friends, or fellow workers, none of the above. Stay alert. Be prepared for serious negotiations. And I'm telling you, this is real. When you're trying to do your thing and you're trying to convert yourself into a better person or a better performer or a better anything or a different anything, those obstacles, they will come crashing down. They will appear at the front door. They'll appear inside your car, inside your head, inside your life, all over the place. They will mess with you. And sometimes you're the cause of them. You have to be ready to try and exercise some kind of change for real. You got to dig down. You got to say to yourself that I have to be ready and everybody else has to be ready. And you sometimes have to just help them be ready. You have to make them certain that you are for real in this, whatever this thing is. You got to honestly be about it for real. Number three, develop a support system. You can do it alone, but it helps a great deal to have other people with whom you can share the joys and perils of the change you're making. The best support system would involve people who have gone through or are going through a similar process. People who can tell their own stories of change and listen to yours. People who will brace you up when you start to backslide and encourage you when you don't. The path of mastery, fortunately, almost always fosters social groupings. In his seminal book, Homo Ludens, a study of the play element in culture, Johann Huizinga comments upon the tendency of sports and games to bring people together. The play community, he points out, is likely to continue even after the game is over, inspired by the feeling of being apart together in an exceptional situation of sharing something important, of mutually withdrawing from the rest of the world and rejecting the usual norms. The same can be said about many other pursuits, whether or not they are formally known as sports, arts and crafts, hunting, fishing, yoga, zen, the professions, the office, or even the beauty parlor. And what if your quest for mastery is a lonely place? What if you can find no fellow voyagers on that particular path? At the least, you can let the people close to you know what you're doing and ask for their support. Number four, follow a regular practice. People embarking on any type of change can gain stability and comfort through practicing some worthwhile activity on a more or less regular basis, not so much for the sake of achieving an external goal as simply for its own sake. A traveler on the path of mastery is again fortunate. For practice in this sense, as I've thought and said many more than once, is the foundation of the path itself. 
The circumstances are particularly happy in case you've already established a regular practice in something else before facing the challenge and change of beginning a new one. It's easier to start applying the principles of mastery to your profession or your primary relationship if you've already established a regular morning exercise program. Practice is a habit, and any regular practice provides a sort of underlying homeostasis, a stable base during the instability of change. Number five, dedicate yourself to lifelong learning. We tend to forget that learning is much more than book learning. To learn is to change. Education, whether it involves books, body, or behavior, is a process that changes the learner. It doesn't have to end at college graduation or at age 40 or 60 or 80. And the best learning of all involves learning how to learn, that is, to change. The lifelong learner is essentially one who has learned to deal with homeostasis simply because he or she is doing it all the time. The dabbler, obsessive, and hacker are all learners in their own fashion, but lifelong learning is the special province of those who travel the path of mastery. And on that path, it never ends. So for all intents and purposes, it's totally true in its realist interpretation that learning honestly never ends. If you keep that channel open, and if you're like me, You'll be so surprised at what magic and opportunity will be presented to you for examination and consideration so that you, too, can make your imprint on the world. The world is waiting. We will be better when we hear from you. If you're ready, then what are you waiting for? As the old neighborhood vernacular states, ain't nothing to it but to do it. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of the Round 12 podcast series. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time!